Well, it's a huge blessing to be able to come underneath God's word uh, this morning uh, together. And I, I love the heat in here. It's, uh, I was made for Florida, I'm telling you. Grief, grief is inescapable. I'm sure that will not be news to you. Sorrow is impossible to run from. You see, grief exists because pain exists. And as long as there is pain in the world, there will be grief. And do you realize that actually there is a day coming when there will be no more pain, and therefore there will be no more grief? There is coming a day when you will actually not have sleepless nights, where you will not have to skip meals because you have no hunger because of stress. There is that day coming, but it's not now. Now are the days of grief, because pain exists in the world. And as long as you pilgrimage on this earth, brothers and sisters, you will experience grief. It is inescapable. We can try to hide from it. We can try to stuff it down and act like it's not there. We can try to deny it. We can try to numb it by pleasures of the world. But grief will not go away. Meanwhile, hope is a universal longing. Hope, the the idea that that we can look forward into the future, look down the line and see that there's, there's a confident reason that goodness is ahead. Hope is a universal longing. I, I, I don't think you'll find a person alive that does not want hope. In fact, you well know hopelessness crushes us. It, when, you, when you look in the future and you feel like there is no reason to have any kind of a confident assurance that goodness is to come, that will utterly destroy you. And so there's this deep longing in every human soul to have hope. The the question that everybody has to ask in the world is the hope that you're searching for, that you're finding, is it reasonable? Is, Is it actually rational? You see, there is so much grief, so much pain, and we long for this hope, some sort of a stability in the midst of grief. But the big question is, is it reasonable? And that's the question we all have to ask. Everybody in the world has to ask that question. That hope that we long for, that we search for, that we grasp for, is it actually reasonable? Is, there, is, is it grounded on anything that has real substance, a foundation that will give us stability in the midst of grief, because we can't hide from it. We need something in the midst of grief that will give us stability. Is it reasonable to have hope in the midst of grief? And I think there is. In fact, I think Advent helps answer that question for us. Advent, remember, is the the word actually means coming. It's, it's remembering that the coming of the Son of God who took on flesh to come and rescue his people. But it's also pointing forward to the coming, the second coming of, 
the Son of God, where he will, he will consummate his kingdom. The new heavens, the new earth will be here, and God's people will be with him forever, and there will be no more grief. So there's this looking back on the first coming, looking forward to the second coming. And our passage that uh, Jessica actually just read for us uh, actually follows that exact pattern. It looks first back, actually goes before the, the incarnation, the, when God took on flesh. It starts back that Jesus, the Son of God, was God. He is God, always will be God. And you remember we looked at it last week. He took on flesh. He emptied himself, not by subtraction, but by addition. By pouring himself out and taking on human flesh, even as a servant, all the way unto death, and then he is exalted. And so the, our passage follows that very same theme, looking back to the first coming, and then looking forward to our king, where every tongue will, will confess and every knee shall bow at the name of Christ Jesus. Last week in particular, we considered the gap that exists of, of Christ, the, the, the one being in the universe, God himself, who deserves all glory and praise and worship, lowered himself, if you remember that. He lowered himself all the way to the point of taking on human flesh. But it wasn't that he was born into this nice, royal, strong, powerful, wealthy family. He was born into a lowly family. And if you read on verse 8, which we didn't get to last week, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what verse 8 is doing is, is even just widening that gap. Because it's not just that the Son of God took on flesh, came as a, into a poor family, but then he even faced death. He wasn't, he wasn't rescued from it. He actually, before it, he actually went into it. And it wasn't a nice, safe death, right? It wasn't like he just grew old and just fell asleep and, and just never woke up, and it was a, a painless death. Nor was it like a quick heart attack that was over in a flash. But it was one of the most horrific ways anybody could possibly die. A type of torture and crucifixion that only the worst of the worst of criminals would, were given. It was meant to shame the people. So Paul is trying to paint this picture of this gap that exists of Christ who came and lowered himself for the sake of his people to rescue his people. Now, I think when this reality that the Son of God took on flesh, died in the place of his people to bring us back to God, when that reality really takes hold deep into our soul, it will actually give us stability in grief. In fact, we're going to do a little bit of meandering here now. Uh, so let's go over to 1 Thessalonians. You can just go, it's about four or five pages forward. So Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we'll actually see Paul making this claim right in our passage here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. We'll just meditate on this this morning. But we do not want you <clears throat> to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, or uh, it's a euphemism for dead. That you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So notice what you have there in verse 13. Uh, Paul is saying there is grief. There's a way to grieve without hope. And to say it in a positive sense, there is a way to grieve with hope. So who is he talking to here in our passage? Look at verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed brothers. So here he's talking to the church. He's not talking about the world. He's, he's, he's talking specifically to the church. Here the church in Thessalonica. This was a hurting church. This was a young church. Paul had planted it. And they were experiencing uh, affliction. Uh, sounds like both physical persecution as well as false teaching that was disrupting things. And Timothy had gone to check them out and came back with this great report that they are strong in faith. And Paul's writing to try and encourage them in the midst of affliction. And he wants them not to grieve as the world does, but differently. That there's a way to grieve with hope. But notice what it says here. Uh, Paul is not saying because you follow the Lord Jesus, who's risen from the dead, you will not experience grief. He, he, he doesn't say this is a ticket away from grief. N nor does he say, because you follow the Lord Jesus, and we have a promise that God will work together all things for our good, that means everything is going to be safe. In, in fact, that sort of a promise from Romans 8 actually has teeth because we experience pain and grief. That's what that promise is for, is people who are hurting and struggling. That God still holds us and will bring us through and actually shape all those things that are hard for the sake of our good. Christians indeed experience pain and Christians indeed experience grief. Now, we could go through the room and find out there's a lot of different types of pain that bring grief in our life. There's physical ailments that are chronic. And one of, one of the things about physical pain is oftentimes that means loss. Right? Loss of normal activities. Loss of your hopes and dreams that you would love to do but you can't because of certain pains or physical ailments. Loss of comfort. Loss of freedom. Physical pain causes great grief. There, there's death. We all encounter death of loved ones. And death brings great grief. The first time you sit at the table and your loved one is no longer there that you're, you're used to being able to talk to. The first Christmas, the first birthday. And sometimes those are every year occurrences. Mother's Day, Father's Day, a child's birthday. That it's every, every year that grief keeps coming back. And it's not only just that the person's not there. Sometimes it's the whole process of death. As you travel, if it's a prolonged period, that every month you go see your loved one, you think it might be the last one, and it just continues. And it takes an emotional toll on you. It causes deep, deep grief. There are mental health issues. Uh, Issues, struggles that are persistent, anxiety, depression, social phobias, 
things that limit our ability to enjoy the everyday life. And as those just, it, it just seems like that this, the clouds will not part. It, it's, it stirs up great grief. Rejection from other people causes a lot of pain and a lot of grief. I, I know for me, I've, I have uh, sadly way too often not tried new things or not tried certain things because I'm afraid of rejection. It hurts me deeply. Broken relationships, broken marriages, broken relationships between parents and their children, broken relationships between siblings, between friends. You have someone that you love, that you've trusted, and somehow that relationship is severed, and it makes you feel very alone. It makes you afraid to trust people again. And that grief comes deep. And of course, there's community hardships. A disaster happens in a community, you know, natural disaster that causes deep grief, but all sorts of disasters. We were made for community, joyful community, peaceful community. We were made for other people, to love one another and help one another. And when things happen in a community that causes pain, in grief, it makes us want to turn the other way because it makes us feel vulnerable. And it sends up all sorts of grief. And of course, we would be remiss to not acknowledge that as a community, a church community, we are experiencing grief. There is pain. And we could go around the room and, and discuss the, the types of grief that each of us are experiencing how that's manifesting itself. The pain is real. The pain goes deep. And therefore, the grief is real. Now, in the midst of grief, we all want hope. We all want something to be able to hold on to we all want something to solve the pain inside. That's just something that's in us. The, the question is, where do we go? Where are we going to find that? Well, you know, some people, many people, feel like there is no reason for it. And it leads to despair. They, they look forward and they see no reason, solid reason to stand on and see that there's any confident assurance of goodness to come. And so it leads to despair. And that's crushing. Uh, other people uh, will grab hold of empty mantras that just float around in our culture. You know, like something like this. Well, just keep your head up. Everything happens for a reason. You, could, you can hear that on a daily talk show. So it's a common phrase we, we like to grab hold, to, hold of. Question is, is there any foundation to it? Or uh, uh, one that we, we like, our culture, uh, when someone dies is, oh, they're up there watching you. Or they're up there playing cards or doing the greatest activity that they always love. They're, it'll be okay. And we just grab hold of that so quick so that we just don't have to deal with the pain. But they're empty mantras question is, do they have substance? 
And if that doesn't work, we simply try to numb ourselves with pleasure. Just try to erase it somehow. Maybe the pleasure can be louder than the pain. Food, sex, resources, exciting experiences, thrills that shock you, skydiving, bungee jumping, climbing cliffs, all good things on their own. But if we're using that to somehow try to silence this or, or be louder than the pain, that, that does not help us. And notice how Paul writes here in verse 13. Paul does not want the believers to grieve as the others do. Here he's talking about the world who have no hope. They grieve. Oh, yes, they grieve. They might try to hide it. They might try to numb it. But they grieve and they have no hope. But Paul says, I want something different for you. You who know the Lord, there's a different way to grieve. And notice what makes the difference. The way he starts out, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. You see, if you're uninformed, if your grief is not informed, it leads to hopelessness. But if your grief is informed, he says, then you can grieve with hope. You see that? So if our grief is informed, we can actually have hope in the midst of grief. Not to get out of grief, but in grief, we can find hope. So the question is, informed by what? Like That should be the question we're asking, right? Well, he continues in verse 14, giving the reason and exactly what he's, we need to be informed with. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died... And rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You see what he's doing here? See, the reason we can have hope if we're informed by something is the fact that the Son of God took on flesh, he lived a perfect life, he died. He actually died, which pays the penalty that his people deserve for their sin, that they're rescued from the wrath of God. And he raised from the dead. And then he says, and that means that you too, if you, if, if you are a beneficiary of his death, you too will be raised. And so what Paul's trying to do here then, if, if that's true, if the Son of God really took on flesh and really lived a perfect life and really died in the place of his people and really went into the grave and really came out of that grave, that changes everything in the midst of grief. It says that changes everything right when you're in the midst of grief. Because one, we have a Lord who actually identifies with us in grief. You remember the, the name for the Lord, a man of sorrows. He knows our grief. He knows our pain. He was one who was betrayed, who was mistreated, who was slandered, who was even crucified on a cross. So he knows our pain. But he not only identifies with us, he actually solves the worst problem that we have. The greatest problem that we have is not just the one on earth, but the one that we have to face God on judgment day. And if that is solved, if our greatest problem is solved, Paul says, if we can hold on to that, that will inform us in the midst of grief 
and actually be able to have hope. Which means then, as followers of Christ, if we have informed grief, we should be able to grieve differently than the world. Doesn't mean we won't grieve, but we will grieve differently. Well, what does that mean? How does that look? That's still worth asking. I think, I think one of the things we would say is it means we actually can face the grief. Now, remember that the world, everybody longs for hope. That all they can do is try to silence the grief. They don't actually have a solution for it. But as followers of Christ, we can actually look it in the face and face our grief. And not only that, but we possibly will grieve much deeper than the world because we actually face it. We don't have to hide from it. Now, I'm not saying we grieve louder. That may be the case. But we, don't, we need not judge grieving by external appearances. Grief, oftentimes, is very, very, very deep in the soul that sometimes the externals aren't even able to show. That the grief is deep. And I think... Uh, as followers of Christ, we actually might grieve way deeper than other people. Because we can face it. We don't have to run from it. We don't have to silence it. Because our grief then directs us beyond the grief itself. And not to just some hokey pokey placebo, but actually to a person. You see what Paul does here in verse 14. First he points us backwards to a person. The Lord Jesus died. It's an actual historical event. This is, this is built on a foundation where he's trying to direct our hope on an actual event that happened. Christ died. And if he died, if that event in history actually happened, then our hope has a foundation that it can stand on. So first he points back, and then he points forward that you too will be raised. So our, our grief is actually supposed to direct us, direct our hearts point us to a reference point. It points us back to the work of Christ and points us forward to the future work of Christ. And so we're being directed or informed to a very person, to the Lord Jesus himself. And I like, uh, that's why I said we'll do a little meandering here today. Uh, I like the, in, in Hebrews, actually, it's not just pointing back to a beleaguered church, uh, it's not just pointing back, it's not just pointing forward, but he also points up in the present. In, in, in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, <clears throat> he, he, uh, he, he's taught, writing to the church that's, that's a little bit beat up and bruised. They're, they're tired, they're fatigued, they have a lot of afflictions coming from all over the place. And he goes into this uh, part in chapter 6 where he says, we, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that has gone into the inner place beyond the curtain. That's, that's the, the holy of holies. He's painting the picture of, of not just a physical temple, uh, where, the, where God's dwelling place was in the holy of holies, right in the deepest part of the temple, but a heavenly tabernacle where Christ has gone, he says, as a forerunner going before us on our behalf, having become a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And a high priest, you know, a priest's duty is to intercede for God's people before God. A priest brings God's people to God. 
brings the prayers of God's people. It brings the sacrifices of God's people. But, as the author of Hebrews talks, the high priests and the priests of old, they had to make sacrifices for themselves, too. They, too, were beset with sin. But not the Lord Jesus, who is the ultimate high priest. He didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself in order to use an animal. Because an animal can't forgive us of sin. He used his very self. The high priest himself offered himself before God and was accepted on God's people, on the behalf of God's people. And then he says, and now that high priest, what he does is he intercedes for his people. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 8. That the Lord Jesus now, in his high priestly ministry, is actually interceding for God's people. Ensuring that truly, God will work together all things for the good of God's people, to those who are called and love God. This is the great ministry that we think of, of the Lord Jesus today. What is the Lord Jesus doing today? If you're a follower of Christ, he is interceding for you before God. And he will make sure all of your grief, all of your pain, will actually be turned together for the good of God's people. I, I love the, the illustration that he uses in Hebrews 6 there. An anchor for the soul. You know what an anchor is, right? That they throw it off the boat, goes into the, the bottom of the sea. And provided that the anchor is working correctly, that anchor will keep the boat from floating off. Now that becomes especially important when there's some sort of a storm. I was watching some videos this week of boats in the midst of storms having an anchor. There was one right in the midst of a crazy hurricane, and that anchor just held that boat there, and it's getting thrashed around, and the people inside the boat are playing instruments. And the, the picture that he's painting is that he says, we have an anchor for our very soul, in the midst of pain, in the midst of grief, not to get us out, but in the midst of grief. We have an anchor that holds us. Where is that anchor? He says it's, it's with the Lord Jesus who goes before the Father. And we know he will keep us, and we know he'll care for us, and that will keep us in the midst of the storm, to not fall over. That will hold us. And I told some of you uh, this, this week, uh, this, uh, there was uh, a night that I was, I was not sleeping, and it was in the middle of the night, and I, I was struggling to pray. I couldn't get, couldn't get words out. And this, this very phrase came to my mind, anchor of the soul. And all I could do for the next, I don't know how long, but it just I repeated the same phrase over and over and over, and that's, that's all I could get out. And the phrase was, I beg you, Lord, be the anchor of my soul. I beg you, Lord, be the anchor of my soul. Lord, I beg you, you, I need you to be the anchor for my soul. Anchor me, Lord Jesus. I beg you, anchor me. It doesn't take away the pain, but it gives us some sort of stability in the midst of pain that the Lord Jesus is going to care for his sheep. He shed his blood to bring his people back to us, or back to God. He will keep his sheep. So if you're grieving, it doesn't mean something's wrong with you. Pain is real, and therefore grief 
is real. The grief of God's people can be grief with hope. And the way, they're the pathway to having grief with hope is that our grief is informed. It's informed of the incarnation, that the Son of God took on flesh. He lived a perfect life for us. He died in our place. He rose from the dead, and he indeed will come again. And today, brothers and sisters, he is carrying out his high priestly ministry on your behalf, ensuring that all things will work together for our good. And therefore, we can have grief with hope. Because hope or grief is not the end of the story. In fact, grief points us to the end of the story, to the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And with that, we will partake of the Lord's 